Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are in 1 Corinthians 8 this morning. We're going to finish up this chapter. We've been working through it section by section, uh, taking one message in each portion, but they really form a condensed outline, and I just want to read the whole text to us this morning by way of preparation as we look at verses 7 to 13 in some detail this morning. Paul says this, he says, Now things, uh, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if, if food causes my brother to stumble... I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, we said several Sundays ago that beginning in chapter 8 and moving all the way into nine chapters 9 and 10, that uh, Paul is taking up this whole issue of meat offered to an idol, which, when if we're honest, is not something that on the face of it seems particularly relevant to our present circumstances, at least in our modern culture. But what we have said and what we will continue to unpack this morning is that when we zoom out to the level of timeless spiritual principle, what we learn is that our initial impressions of the text are, are in fact deceiving. There is a lot here. This section is just as relevant, perhaps even more relevant today than it has ever been um, for God's people. And it was important for the Corinthian church to hear what Paul was teaching them. And what we learn in this text and what we have been reiterating again and again through each of these messages is this truth that love, not simply knowledge, is the ground of Christian conduct. That our love is, uh, is, is what is matters and what grounds Christian conduct, not simply our knowledge. Corinth was a city neck deep in idol worship. It, the roots of idol worship had wrapped themselves around much of the social and the commercial life um, of the average citizen in this, in this Roman province, this Roman city. It was common social practice to have a meal in a temple or some place where a sacrifice would have been offered to a pagan god. And beyond that, meat sold in the marketplace that you could purchase for sale to cook and eat yourself 
would have most likely been processed through a temple, having first been offered as some kind of a sacrifice. So the priests would obviously offer some of the meat. They would keep some for themselves and sell the rest so it didn't go to waste. So even the meat that was available for purchase was avail- was, had been some point in its life cycle had touched false worship. For you as a Christian in that day to avoid all connection and contact with food offered to an idol, uh, you would have had to cut yourself off from most of the social and the commercial dynamics of the day. That would not be an easy thing to do. And to muddy the waters up even more, the Corinthian church had not just these external social and commercial pressures, but they also had the added conflict of brothers and sisters in the church internally who took very distinct and different views on this issue of meat offered to an idol. We said one group, we called called them the knowledge group, were the ones who were saying, listen, meat is just that. It's just meat. And whether it's been offered to a false god or not, it's from God. It's meant to be good for us to enjoy. And so it doesn't matter where the meat comes from. It doesn't matter what it's been associated with. It's just meat. And so their view was it doesn't really matter. But there was a second group, and, um, and this is the per- people he's referring to in some detail here. He calls them the weak, who also have a very distinct view of meat offered to idols, but it's the opposite of the strong, and that they wanted a clean break with any and all connection with their previous life before Christ. And they thought it was wrong for a believer to dine in an idol's temple, uh, or to even eat. Some of them probably had con- had a pangs of conscience about even eating meat purchased that had once been part of false worship. So what you have then is in the church itself, two groups of people in the same body with, with opposite views of this issue. And, uh, and it was driving a wedge between the church, the members of the church. So Paul has stepped in in chapter eight, nine, in chapters 8, 9, and 10 to extend his apostolic counsel. And this very specific issue then of, of meat and it's, and it's uh, offered to an idol, which is very unique to the first century, um, that becomes a word to all God's people in, for all time, and it teaches us profound spiritual truth that we alluded to earlier, and that is that love, not simply knowledge, is what must ground Christian conduct. We said knowledge alone is not enough. It's not enough to build up The church, knowledge, when it lacks the essential ingredient of love, Paul says in verse 1, simply puffs up. But knowledge, when it's salted with love, it ends up building up and edifying. We see that in verse 1. And what Paul brings to the foreground in this gentle correction that happens in verses 1, 2, and 3 is that the Corinthians, he shows them that they had a wrong view of knowledge. Their understanding of what it meant to know the Bible or to know God's word That was distorted because in that they were thinking of it in terms of bare data. Knowledge was nothing more to them than accumulating more Bible facts. Um, and, and knowledge that is, cons- it, was, it was a knowledge consumed with protecting the sterile correctness of their theological system. And what Paul says is, if that is all knowledge is doing for you, he says you ultimately are becoming more and more prideful and you are tearing down the church, not building it up. 
He says here, and alludes to the fact, that love doesn't pridefully drag a fellow Christian over the guardrails of their conscience. Love is patient. Love is humble. And patient, humble Christians who are walking in love are more concerned about building others up in the church than they are about having everything their own way. That's why I say that this spiritual truth conveyed in these verses, it rises above the cultural occasion that provokes Paul to write this. The issue of meat offered to idols is just the, the occasion, the specific circumstance that God the Spirit would use to engrave on the church's heart this principle that love, not simply knowledge, grounds Christian conduct. And so we saw that in verses 1 to 3. And last uh, time, two Sundays ago, when we were in verses 4 to 6, we saw Paul allude to the church's common confession. Verses 1 to 3 were the church's gentle correction. Verses 4 to 6 were the church's common, he alludes to the church's common confession. He says, therefore, concerning the things, eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. We said verse 4 and verse 6 specifically, um, taken together, have a confessional creedal ring to them. Um, Verse 4 is, a, is a, almost a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 that says that God is one. But even verse 6 as well, these, don't just, these words that Paul quotes and, and writes to them don't just seem like something Paul said alone individually, but these are things perhaps that many Christians had said in many different contexts. It was a concise summary of biblical truth. And indeed, many commentators throughout church history have a have affirmed this as they study and comment on, on these verses. They compose some kind of a confessional statement that was known, adhered to, and repeated amongst the brethren in Christ's churches. It is essentially a faithful summary of biblical doctrine, a form or pattern of sound words, as Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, affirmed by all God's people. And Paul says, he, he, he takes that confession, that common confession, and he says it is a reminder of what binds the church together. And what binds the church together isn't something external. It isn't something superficial. What binds the church together isn't whether we eat meat or not, but what eternal truths we hold in common. Unity Grounded in eternal truth is the only, we said last time, is the only unity that is real and valuable. Unity around common behaviors, unity around common ethnicities, unity around common personal and political interests, or any other superficial thing is fleeting. It doesn't last. It can't withstand the stresses and strains of this world, the risings and fallings of our sin-cursed hearts. And so, while unbelievers rally around whatever is the most immediate, whatever is, is most naturally binding their hearts together in a given setting, true Christians are bound together forever and unalterably, we said, by the eternal truths that we confess in common. The truths like Jesus is Lord, or truths like salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Or as he alludes to here in verse 4 and verse 6, that God is one, the only living and true God, and this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This reality that God is triune, that he is a trinity. Like those are things that all believers hold in common. And our lives are inextricably bound up together in the triune God, and that dictates how we live and for whom we live. That was the application that we made. The Corinthians were coming at one another, particularly their weaker brothers and sisters, and they were using their knowledge of God's oneness that there is no God but one, they were using that as a um, justification for doing what they personally wanted. And, uh, and that really was, they were callous to how that affected the other brethren in the church. And Paul uses their weight against them to show that actually their knowledge of the triune God, as summarized in our common confession, would demand the opposite. Because everything is from God and through God and to God, all that we do, we do with an eye not toward ourselves, but to God and for his glory and the glory of his name. And a huge part of that glory that we learned even in the equipping hour time this morning is how we build up the brethren, how we treat one another. We ended last time reminding reminded that we cannot drive a wedge between what we do and whom we do it for. They're one and the same. How we treat God's people in his church is a big deal. It is a big deal to Paul because it is a big deal to God. And that is how he turns then in verses 7 to 13, which is what we're going to look at this morning. He turns in verses 7 to 13 to make the application, having, teed, having corrected them in verses 1 to 3, having laid before them the reality of our common confession in verses 4, 5, and 6, and the fact that we do all, we do all that we do for Christ and that we're one body, he then takes that and tees it up to make application in verses 7 to 13. And so we're going to break these verses down into four parts this morning. We're going to see in verse 7 the issue kind of restated, uh, or, or really what he explains to them what they're, what they're missing. The issue in verse 7, the injunction in verses 8 and 9, the injury in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, and then lastly, the implication in verse 13. So we see the issue, the, um, the injunction, um, kind of the rule the, to stop doing something, and then uh, verse 10, 11, and 12 are the injury that is caused by not doing that, and then 13 is the implication. So I want to start in verse 7 with the issue. Paul notes again the issue that they were not taking note of in verse 7. He says, remember in verse 1 they said, listen, we all have knowledge. That was them saying that. Uh, Everyone has biblical knowledge. We all have the Spirit of God. And Paul says, yeah, okay, that's true. Verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge. Not all men have this knowledge. While the strong had claimed everybody had the same knowledge, in verse 1, he, and, use, and they were using that as justification to say, well, we can do what we need to do. Paul points out not everybody has the same experience of that knowledge. Not everyone understands all that, we, that you might understand. And it just reminds us that as much as we would like to think that everyone's in the same place, 
in the church. That's just simply not true. It's not simply that, um, it's not simply that um, we all are kind of on the same level. It, the reality is that we all are in different places. Some are babes in Christ in the church. Some are young in the faith. Some are growing up into spiritual maturity. And some, some of us are mature. But the point is that spiritual maturity isn't all or nothing. It's not like you have it or you don't. It, is, it runs along a spectrum. Now, certainly the goal of every Christian is that we would grow up into spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4 says, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, or by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But we are to speak the truth in love, and so to build up, excuse me, or to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So the goal of every Christian is maturity. That should be our goal. That's how we've ordered our philosophy of ministry. It is meant to move people along that spectrum toward greater maturity. And that's the, certainly our goal of, as, a, as a church, but it's my goal and son's goal and other leaders' goal as a pastor and shepherd, as pastors and shepherds. We want to see the flock matured. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, Colossians 1.28 says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the language of maturity. That's what we want. That's what any true shepherd should want for, for his church. But the practical reality is that every church has believers at every point along that continuum. Always. That's the mark of a healthy church, that you're making disciples, and that there will be, in the case of that, younger Christians. There's nothing wrong with being a, a, a babe in Christ. What The problem is if you stay that way. But there's nothing wrong with being a, a, a young in the faith. And Paul's point is that we have to take that into consideration when it comes to our Christian conduct and how we relate to one another in the church. We're not all in the same place. We, are not all, we do not all have the same understanding. And we do not all have the same grasp of truth. And so his point is, the things that they had missed was not all men have this knowledge. When he expands on that at the end of verse 7 to explain what he means, he says, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says, some of your fellow Christians cannot help but eat meat that is connected to an idol's temple as if it were sacrificed themselves to that idol. We've all made the unfortunate mistake at some point or another of looking at a bright light for too long. <laughs> um, I was chasing some exposed wiring in our laundry room the other day, and to do that, I had to look in the direction of a bright 75-watt bulb that's kind of mounted to the ceiling joist. I was trying to kind of trace the wires around to see where the circuit started or whatever. But in the course of that, I ended up looking at this light for far too long. And what happens when you look away from the light when you've looked at it for too long? It's still there, right? It's still in your field of vision. It leaves this indelible mark on the back of your retina, even when there's, the light's not even in front of you or not even on anymore. 
And, um, and so it becomes essentially burned into our line of sight. That is the picture of the word that Paul uses here for ha, having accustomed to the idol. They, it, is, it is a pattern of behavior fixed by tradition and habit. So, so these brothers or sisters were so steeped in this world of idolatry, they had looked at it for so long before Christ, for them to look past their former experience with an understanding of idol worship, even though they may know in their head that an idol is nothing. That was impossible. They couldn't do it. It was still there, even though their eyes were closed, they could still see it. It was burned into their field of vision. And just as our understanding of Scripture isn't necessarily everyone else's present understanding of Scripture, so our personal experiences with certain morally neutral things is not necessarily everyone else's experience in the church. For some, the intensity with which their life before Christ and things connected with their life before Christ, the intensity of those things is so much that it is burned into their field of vision and it makes it very hard for them not to see those things. And so we need to be aware of that. Our experience is not the same for everyone else. And the consequence of their eating, these believers, eating food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, Paul says at the end of verse 7, is that their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Uh, to defile something is to cause it to be ceremonially impure. In other words, it soils their conscience. It soiled their conscience. This is not a small thing. This has no small impact on our brothers and sisters in the church. To cause someone to defile their conscience is a serious sin. It is contrary to love that edifies. If you look further down at verse 11, Paul describes this um, defiling of conscience. Another way, he describes it as destroying or ruining your brother or sister. In verse 13, he describes it as causing your brother or sister to stumble, which mirrors the language of Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7, where he warns, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, same term, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Paul, I think, is very much uh, reflecting the truth that Jesus is teaching there. He's using the same term, speaking about it in the same way. To cause a brother or sister to defile their conscience is a serious sin. And he wants us to understand just how serious it is by drawing our attention to how it injures others and to draw our attention to how it impugns the gospel. Which leads us into the second point. We see the issue kind of delineated in verse 7, but in verses 8 and 9 we see this injunction that is given. Having defined the issue and brought it to light to them in verse 7, he gives this word in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. In verse 8, Paul gets to the reality of things. He states what is obvious, and that is that food doesn't commend us, doesn't bring us into God's presence in any meaningful way. He says something very similar in Romans 14. 
in verse 17, which touches on some of the same issues. Paul says there, he says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when we, when we elevate what is essentially morally neutral, things like food and drink, clothing, fill in the blank, when we elevate those things to the place of being essential, we do several things. Several things first, and I'll go through them in order of kind of seriousness. Uh, we take something that God intended as a blessing and make it a burden. We take what God intended as a blessing and make it a burden. This is what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. Do you remember in the Gospels, God says, uh, Jesus said, God made man a sa- the Sabbath for man. But the Pharisees had turned it upside down with all these rules and regulations and all these things, and now man was being kind of made for the Sabbath. In, in, in other words, that man's job was to try and keep all these things. Instead of being a day of rest, a day of reflection on God's creation and his goodness, it became a day of keeping the rules and making sure you didn't break any of the rules. And that, that was backwards. So we take something that God intended as a blessing and we make it a burden or we turn God's freedom into slavery. Secondly, when we elevate what is morally neutral to the place of something essential, we are guilty of adding to the word of God. And that is a much more serious thing. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 22 and verse 18, uh, Paul, I mean, excuse me, John gives a very stern, a stern reminder. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away, verse 19, from the words of the book, God will take away his part from the tree of life in the holy city. So it is a serious thing to either add to or even to take away from the word of God. We don't ever want to be guilty of um, filling in the white spaces with our own commandments. And thirdly, when we elevate what is morally neutral, things like food and drink and clothing and whatever, we declare that Christ is not enough. And that I think is the most serious. We declare by, not in, maybe we don't mean it intentionally, but what we're saying is that Christ isn't enough. And that is the exact warning that Paul destroys, uh, the exact warning that Paul gives to the Galatian churches in chapter 5. He says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He says, so keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, I tell you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He says, if you think you have to be circumcised to be saved, to convert to Judaism to be saved, he says, Christ is of no benefit to you. You might as well have jettisoned the gospel. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, meaning that he has to do this thing to win God's favor, he is now under obligation to keep the whole law. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So the point is that when we add commandments to the scriptures, when we elevate things that are, that are morally neutral to the place of commandment, we are saying that without that, we can't be saved. We can't be godly. 
And that is to say that Christ and what he did for us was not enough. None of those things are a small deal. And Paul says here that food doesn't commend us to God. Food doesn't make anyone more godly or less godly. It doesn't make us more like God or not like God. You're never more justified than the moment you first trust Christ. You are never more loved by God than the moment in which you first believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You are never more at peace with God than the moment that you received his atoning work at the cross as sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. This is the glory and the greatness of the gospel. It's not about what you do or don't do. Salvation is about what Christ has done for us. And so, by pointing that out to them, he goes on He says, we're not the worse off if we abstain from food offered to idols, nor are we better if we go forward and eat food offered to an idol. He says, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, the Corinthians might have argued the opposite. They would have said, we're no worse off if we abstain. And they would have argued, we're no better off, uh, they're no better off if we indulge. Excuse me, and you're no better off if we don't. But Paul flips it around. The way he says this is important. Don't miss this. Paul says we're no worse off if we don't, and no better off if we do. It's a subtle difference in emphasis. It's easy to miss. But we need to take note of Paul is emphasizing that voluntarily setting aside your privileges and freedoms does not disadvantage you or me or anyone else as a Christian. Likewise, your Christian walk is not advantaged. It isn't helped by indulging every right. Do you see the difference? They would argue, well, it, you, you know, you got to do, we're no better off if we, if we do eat. Uh, and we're no better off if we don't. And Paul says, you've got it backwards. If that's true, and it is true, then you can just as well not do that and not be advantaged or disadvantaged or advantaged. They were running over each other and their consciences, and they thought they were showing their weaker brethren, this is what maximal godliness looks like. We can do these things, see? Because we're so godly. And their weaker brethren were saying, I, we, I, don't, I can't do that with a clear conscience. And they're saying, well, you're missing out. That was their response. And Paul says, no, actually, it's, it's no one's loss or gain. It's no one's loss or gain. And he says, you aren't giving anything up by setting aside that privilege. We need to be reminded of that. I remember when I was in seminary years ago, the, there were these kind of... Um, kind of Theo bros, if you will, that in other seminaries that insisted on drinking beer at the pub and smoking cigars and talking about it on social, well, back then it was blogs and then social media. And the subtle dig was, you know, you more conservative-minded folks aren't as advanced as we are, you know. You're not as far along in godliness and, and, and you don't understand. And, and Paul's response to that kind of thinking would have been verse 8. You, you, you're not set back one iota if you choose not to do those things. 
uh, you're con- if you choose to do that to protect the consciences of those around you, you're not less of a Christian, nor are you more of a Christian if you do those things. Which leads to the injunction in verse 9 itself. He says, but take care, beware, watch out that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We need to be careful that in some way, perhaps in a way we can't even anticipate, this freedom that we have in Christ might become a stumbling block to others. Paul emphasizes, and he says it intentionally, this liberty of yours, (laughs) this this thing that you call liberty, that's your deal. (laughs) It's an indictment. Their understanding of freedom is neither a mature expression of Christian liberty nor a kind of liberty practiced by Paul and the other apostles which he's going to get into in chapter 9. Choosing to dine in an idol's temple, as that's what was going on there, he says it may not be a stumbling block to them, to you personally, but it is to your weaker conscienced brother. All this is just, again, a good reminder that love that edifies has its head up and its eyes out to be considerate of others. Particularly, on matters of conscience, plowing through life unaware and indifferent to how our actions might affect others in the body of Christ is supremely selfish and immature. Toddlers do this, right? They don't, they don't care how their actions affect other people. They just do. That's a sign of what? Immaturity. And it's true for adults as well. We cannot walk through life unaware and indifferent to how our actions affect others. We must be careful that we do not become, this is the injunction, that your freedom might somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul goes on then in verses 10, 11, and 12 to explain how this freedom of theirs might become a stumbling block to others. He's kind of expanding on what he's saying here. So we've seen the issue in verse 7, the injunction in verses 8 and 9, and now in verses 10, 11, and 12, he explains the injury that happens when we ignore our weaker brother or sister in Christ. The situation is, is stated in verse 10 in the form of a rhetorical question. And the, it, Paul assumes the reality of what he's saying. He says, if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? The obvious answer to that question is that it will. It will strengthen or embolden them to do this. And it's interesting, the word strengthen literally is the same word that he used in verse 1 for edify. It's the same term. We are strengthening or building them up But we're not building them up in a positive way. We're building them up in a negative way. It ends up being uh, the opposite. Instead of building them up into Christ-likeness, you're emboldening them in their sin. Because it is sin for them if if it afflicts their conscience. That is what the strong are doing to the weak. They are training them to ignore their conscience. And eventually... That conscience becomes calloused and seared, 
which is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 4. So we need to understand that the injury that happens is one of searing the consciences of the weak and emboldening them, emboldening them to sin. Paul draws it out a little further in verse 11. He telescopes out to show that the injury that happens to when a strong ignores how their actions are affecting those who are weak, he shows that in verse 11. He says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. This knowledge you claim to have that you think belongs to you, he says, through that knowledge, you end up destroying the weak. Now, this word destroy is, um, is a word that's typically connected with eternal destruction and loss. So the question is, is that what he's talking about here? Do we somehow sign their guilty verdict for all eternity? And I think um, on balance, it would be better to understand this contextually that he's not referring to a believer, a weak believer, losing their salvation because that's impossible. He, he's speaking about tearing down spiritually or maybe building up in sin a weaker brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And I believe he's talking about a Christian because he says he describes him as a brother for whose sake Christ died. Christ died for his people. This strongly suggests true saving grace. If they were a false convert, the, the force of Paul's argument drops off. In verse 12, he describes sinning against the one who's weak as sinning against Christ, which again points to a true believer. But this should cause all of us to take a step back and make sure that we are not leading each other into sin, that we aren't doing something that would train someone else toward sin, train them toward ignoring their conscience. His argument telescopes out even, even more detail in verse 12. He says, when you tear down your brother or sister, this brother or sister for whose sake Christ died, you are sinning against the brother and he says, or sister, and you are wounding their conscience. You are wounding their conscience. This has the figurative, the, the word literally means to strike or to beat. And it's used here in a figurative sense. But that's what we do. We essentially beat them in their conscience. We sin against them and strike their weak conscience. A few years ago, we all probably saw a video or two or images of random people walking up um, on the streets of some of the major cities in our country, and uh, you see like a, somebody just strike an old Asian woman walking down the sidewalk or some older Asian man walking down the sidewalk. Just punch him in the face and run away. There's a sense of moral outrage when you, when you see a surveillance video of something like that. There's a sense of, of which, you know, when you watch a 20-something-year-old grown man cold cock an 80-year-old woman who's just minding her own business walking down the street, there's a sense of moral outrage that comes in our hearts when we see that and we hear about that. That's essentially what believers do spiritually when they flaunt their knowledge before the weaker brethren. It's like you're cold-cocking their conscience. And, and, and you're doing it not just once, but again and again and again as you continue to do that thing. And then instead of running away like these cowards did 
in New York and other places, you stand over them and tell them, this is for your good, trying to help you grow up in Christ. No. Paul says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Romans 14, verse 20. All things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. No one would ever tolerate a brother or sister slugging a vulnerable older woman walking down the street. No one would ever, ever condone such behavior. But yet we look past it when it comes to our knowledge in Christ. We will do that to each other in the church in matters of conscience. And in case there is any question of what injury and how serious this is, Paul makes clear you're not just sinning against them. Verse 12, he says, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, verse 12 ends, you sin against Christ. There's an ongoing um, feel to this word. It's a present active indicative. You're, you're continually sinning against Christ. There isn't a true convert on earth that would openly be, concur that it's totally fine to sin against Christ. And yet that's what we do by insisting on exercising our liberty before our weaker brother or sister in Christ. May it never be. Paul brings it all to a conclusion in verse 13. We've seen the issue, the injunction, the injury that occurs in verses 10, 11, and 12. Now he brings it all to an implication in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul uses the same term here that Jesus does in Matthew 18, this term to cause to stumble, cause to sin. And he uses one of the strongest adversative constructions in the original language to make it clear. He says, I will never eat meat again if that's what it takes. The issue for Paul is not whether he eats meat or not, it, nor does it matter to him that his brother or sister attains to his level of understanding. That's not important to Paul. He says, the issue is, am I loving them and building them up? Am I walking in love that edifies? And at a minimum, that means making sure that we do not say or do anything that would cause our brother or sister to stumble. And you say, well, that seems kind of extreme. But can there be anything more important than glorifying God and caring for his people? There cannot be. Romans 14, verse 21 says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Or as we learned in Equipping Hour this morning, 1 Corinthians 14, Let all things, all things, this is an unqualified all, be done for edification. If it's worth doing, it should be edifying. And so sometimes... I think our priorities as Christians can get so warped and twisted that we too, like the world, think freedom in Christ is about, is about being able to do whatever we want, wherever we want, um, around whomever we want. But that, that notion of absolute autonomy is completely foreign to the New Testament. 
It's not there. It, 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 rather, it drinks deeply from the spirit of our age that we live in. Freedom in Christ is not a freedom to do anything you want, around anybody you want, wherever you want. That's not what Paul is talking about. Well, then what is the freedom that we have in Christ? I mean, how should we understand it? Because if we, if we just look to, to the culture, we look around us, we would think freedom is, don't tread on me. I'm going to do whatever I want. And that, that's, that's completely foreign to the New Testament. So what is our freedom in Christ? What does that entail? Well, look at Romans 6 for just a moment. Paul explains it to us. First, freedom in Christ primarily is freedom from sin's power and its unbroken uh, effect on your life. It's, uh, it's, it's freedom from sin's penalty and its unbroken power in your life. Romans 6, verse 7, For he who has died, meaning in Christ, to sin, is freed from sin, acquitted. So, so our freedom in Christ, first and foremost, is a freedom from sin's tyranny over your heart and life. You're no longer a slave to sin. Second, our freedom in Christ is a freedom from selfishness that allows us to give our lives away for others. Galatians 5, verse 13, we've mentioned it already. You are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it's a freedom from uh, this selfishness that is only concerned about one's individual self to be able to go out and serve others. We are not in Christ with, you know, the law has been abolished, but as Paul's going to tell us in chapter 9, we are not without the law. We're just not under the law of Moses. Verse 21, we are to those who are, we are to those, um, he goes, I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, he says, as without law, though not being without the law of God, he's talking about Christians, but under the law of Christ. So we are never out from underneath any kind of restriction or law, or in fact, we're under a higher law. That's what he's alluding to, the law of Christ that penetrates down to the heart of the inner man. This is new covenant stuff right there. So our freedom isn't a freedom to do whatever we want. It's a freedom from sin's tyranny. It's a freedom not to sin, and it's a freedom to serve others with an eye toward Christ. And so the implication is straightforward. Paul says, if, if that thing causes another brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again, if that's what it takes. So that, this is the reason, I will not cause my brother to stumble. He never, ever wanted to be the reason that a Christian tread it over their conscience. And we must have that same attitude. Knowledge alone is not enough to build up the church. Knowledge simply puffs up. We need a knowledge, we need knowledge, but it needs to be a knowledge that is united to love because love edifies. And if that means setting aside some right, some privilege, some preference to ensure that others in the church are not wounded, they aren't built up 
to against their conscience to do something that they think is wrong. If that's what it means, if we have to set that thing aside for a season or maybe forever, well, let's do that with earnestness and joy. This is, this is the church's mutual care for one another. I wish I'd preached this text about two years ago. I really do. Because this has been totally lost over the last two years. We need to understand it's not about getting your way in the church, but it is about loving others and seeing them built up. And we don't want to do anything or insist on anything that would tear down our brothers and sisters in Christ. We looked at Romans 14, I think, at some point, which talks about some of these same issues. And Paul's not done, though, because he's going to go in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, in chapter 9, and he is going to show them that he does not just call them to do this, but he practices what he preaches. And that his life has been one of setting aside his preferences, his rights, his privileges for the advancement of the gospel, because that is what matters most to him. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And that has to be our attitude as well. And I praise God that it is and has been for our church over these last several years. But it, what a reminder, what a call. This is so, this is so contrary to our natural instinct. It, uh, I was just, I, I think my conviction on these things has grown even more settled over the last couple of weeks, looking through this material, teaching, preparing. I, w I wish I'd preached it. I wish I preached it sooner. But this is, this is our mutual care. And that ultimately is, is where Paul ends. And so he begins then next time we're together, that we're here, we'll look at chapter 9 and we'll begin to see how Paul takes this and explains how he himself and Barnabas and others, how they have practiced what he's preached. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us uh, in setting our minds aright. You know, it's so easy to, um, to drink in the spirit of the age and to let that permeate our thinking and our, our mindset, our attitudes. And, uh, and we need to come back to the scriptures to recalibrate. We need to come back to the, the word of God to be built up in what is true. And we pray, I pray that our church would continue to be marked out by a love for the brethren that is willing at all costs to set aside anything that would cause a stumbling block to our brother or sister in Christ. I pray that we would have this heart that Paul had, that we would walk in his footsteps and follow his example, and that all things would be done in your church for edification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.